A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello and welcome to episode 149. Before I introduce you to this week's guest, I've got a few little bits of news and a couple of updates. This week at Fort Stabry's Factory Project, curator Rosalind Davis and I were in conversation in front of an audience. And I also took the opportunity to record it, so that will be coming out pretty soon. Well, this week, on Wednesday the 27th of October, sees my favourite happening in the arty calendar. And that is the annual exhibition put on by Kersler Arts at the Royal Festival Hall on the South Bank, which shows work by people within the criminal justice system. And this year is curated by Camille Walala and her sister Sarah Ela Mayer. So prepare to be dazzled. And previous curators have been the likes of Sarah Lucas, Anthony Gormley, Grayson Perry, Benjamin Zephaniah, and I know I'm a little bit biased here, but you ask anyone who's been to a previous show, you'll be hard pushed to go to another exhibition where the artwork is emitting so much energy. If you've not been before, I urge you to attend. You will not be disappointed. And it's on until December the 5th, so there's no excuses if you live in London. So that is an exhibition by Kersler Arts at the Royal Festival Hall on the South Bank. Its title is The I and the We... And it's curated by Camille Walala and Sarah Elamaya. And we're just trying to sort out an episode with Camille or Sarah. So keep your ears open for that one. That'll be a stunner. Well, this week we have an absolute treat for you. I'm going to be introducing you to artist, physicist and pioneering environmentalist, Dr. Jasmine Pradesito. And just last week was named the People's Environment Achievement Awards winner 2021. Go on, Dr. Jasmine. Jasmine creates mainly public art, obviously making us aware of environmental issues, but the background of some of her works are really quite personal. And I'm sure you'll agree, every episode has a few little nuggets of information that you can take away with you. Well, with Jasmine being an expert in her field, 
you know that this podcast is going to be one of those where every few minutes you're going to have to stop what you're doing and just listen. So please, come and join me as I spoke over Zoom to the quite amazing Dr. Jasmine Pradesito. Well, as we speak, you'll realise that innovation is my thing. And this was a body of work I made, what, 15, 16 years ago? I like that. So, and I designed a machine. So I trained classically, Gary. Yeah. So I taught myself how to draw and paint and everything whilst I was doing the science. And mm. that was at a time that people didn't combine the two. I did them in, I did the art in secret. And then when my son was, what, four and a half or so, I just thought, I really don't understand the language of art. I do not understand what these people are saying. So I thought, uh, and I probably still don't, actually. So I went back to art college. And for the first two years, I was still doing portraiture and painting and doing you know, the stuff that we classically think of as art. And then I had um, a brilliant tutor who kind of came in. And I kept all my qualifications, everything I'd done fairly secret because yeah i didn't want to i was there to learn i wasn't there to, to make a point i was there to learn and then yeah. he kind of came in and he said you know i found out you've got a phd in physics and blah 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 and 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 he said this is great he said but why aren't you using that massive wealth of knowledge and and i still remember saying oh god am i allowed to do that I, yeah. it had never occurred to me and one of the reasons i love doing interviews like this and everything else is that i have found that quite uh i call myself an active accidental activist and <laughs> quite by chance i love to be able to say to people we all have permission to be creative but anyway the point is that the literally the next day i started designing machines and i got some sponsorship from dulux and obviously wow. having been a draftswoman for such a long time i became really interested in the nature of the perfect line and so I started using Pendulum and all sorts of things. Excellent. Now you get an awful lot of that on YouTube. <laughs> but that's what, this one's called Dot Condensation Chamber. And it's the type of thing that you would see at CERN. If you're looking at teeny tiny particles, you can't see them. But they work a little bit like, you know, when you see an aircraft go across the sky and you see yeah. a trail? That's what these teeny tiny particles do. And wow. that, so that's what that reminds me of. <laughs> And aren't you pleased that that tutor told you that? And there's nothing wrong with traditional art. It will always be there. But how your mindset can change and evolve as an artist. Absolutely. He it's was beautiful. I did not know the word polymath until recently, but I have been a polymath my whole life. I'm intensely curious, inquisitive. I hate the elitism of various subjects. You know, I've worked with a lot of people in businesses and kids and stuff. And I realized that actually sometimes the better people think they become at something, the more closed they become in their thinking. And actually we should all kind of remain very curious and inquisitive and childlike, yeah. incredibly important. Brilliant. So yeah, I owe him, he's dead now, unfortunately, bless him. But you know, sometimes it only takes one or two people in your world to really change it. You know, so you think if I can, pay that forward in some way that's that's okay that's yeah well I, I often say that it we're on a sort of our journey we're like a train on a train track and every now and then someone comes in and sort of pulls that lever to make you take just a slightly different track but yeah full of um new views and experiences and adventures and yeah where would we be without people like that Oh, I can tell you're the same. You're obviously, uh, I always call myself a dopamine junkie. I am definitely an ideas junkie. And, and I live for that, really. And I just want that for everyone else, which is why I try and make what I do. Because 
we got we got plenty of very negative things happening in the world and i'm like everyone else sometimes i just want to not get out of bed and i think no come on we've got to change things and we've got to get other people to help us change things so. oh i agree i agree jasmine i have seven questions that i ask each artist on this podcast okay. The first being, which I should have asked, which you've already sort of half answered, <laughs> is um, how would you explain what you do to someone that doesn't know your work? I look to the past in order to be able to learn from it so that we can go into the future. That's ultimately what I do. That's science, right? Yeah. So that so materiality is really fundamental. By that, I mean the stuff that I work with. So yeah. obviously, as a scientist, I am an experimentalist. In science, we're limited by the natural laws. and In art, we can create anything that our imaginations can come up with. So I get, in the process, I get very curious about using materials in the way that they're not supposed to be used. And in terms of uh, my ethos, if you, if you will now, it's no longer about creating things just because I can. I stopped doing that a long time ago. Yeah. I used to create from the mind. And now, although it may sound like a cliche, I, it's from insight now. It's from how I feel. It's not because you know, I've got enough dots in there to join. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, what I'm trying to get people to kind of remember is the awe and wonder of the world around them. And that and no matter how, there's one, there's one quote I absolutely love by a naturalist called E.O. Forster, who lost sight in one eye when he was a child. And because he couldn't see things the way that other people could, he became incredibly interested in insects and teeny tiny little societies. And one of his wonderful quotes is that we are paleolithic creatures living with medieval institutions, but we have godlike tech. Brilliant. And it's a perfect storm. Yeah. And I see that because of my background. And and actually, it doesn't matter how brilliant we are if we don't have the air to breathe, the water to drink, and the food to eat. And, and also not just for ourselves, but other species. So my work is very much about trying to create things that hopefully stop people in their tracks and, and also try to, tries to create an impact because I've been pioneering this. I didn't create the material, I must be clear on that, but the material had never been used for sculpture before. Brilliant. So I remember approaching them and saying, I'd really like to drive awareness, not just to what you're doing, but a whole load of science and engineering companies. Will you allow me to try and make art from it? And it has, it's now, it's now kind of evolving and I'm using found objects and, um, but yeah, it's, it's really to try and make people become aware of the things that we take for granted, Gary, before we can no longer appreciate them. Beautiful. But that, that's not a message that, that we should be trying to tell. That's a message that everyone should be aware of anyway, isn't it? You know? But when you think of climate change, right? I remember writing, you know, I'm a little bit long in the tooth. I remember writing a, a climate chat. It was about greenhouse gases about 25 years ago yeah. i remember writing an essay about that and not a lot not a lot has changed and we can present people with data and science when you can see it with you know things like the vaccines and stuff and it can i don't know it can bypass people whereas something you can look at or something you can interact with or something that you actually this is part of my everyday experience can yeah, a stop bit visual people. proof yeah so art, I am a great believer. If you think about art, we were drawing on cave walls long before we had language. So art has, it's, the, it's one of the best things, not just art, but music and, and literature. It's one of the best things about being human. And, and yeah, that's why, you know, I've done, I've tried the science bit. Now I'm trying the art bit and, and those two things together. So hopefully we can get the message out. Well, I think that any form of art is so much more powerful when it's got a message attached doesn't matter what that message is. 
as long as someone is trying to say something, if you're trying to make people see the world around them, you can't beat it as far as I'm concerned. Ironically, though, you know, the funny thing, Gary, is I've never made art thinking about myself at the centre of it. But now that I always now make from a place of intuition and it's only afterwards I look back and I go, oh, that was the story. And now I can see that I am fundamentally at the middle of all of it. And it's kind of a bit it's kind of a bit weird. I mean, obviously, the artist makes it. There's always going to be a chunk of the artist in there. Of course. But you look back and you can see all the dots of your life, all yeah. the influences. They all join so beautifully that it's kind of, sometimes it's a little bit spooky. Actually. Yeah. Whilst I've got you there, I'm just going to show when you talked about what's important. I've just got one across the room. I just got it. I just got it back from the exhibition yesterday. So this this little piece here is one of my absolute favourites. I've seen this. Yeah, That's I've my seen son's, that. It's my son's hand. Right. right. Could you just explain what it is? as it's audio so this oh, of course <laughs> <laughs> i can see but no one else can <laughs> oops okay uh, what was i was gonna say so uh it was just in the inaugural sustainability first show so again one of the first of its kind you know art that's based around the environment and this i hate the word sustainability because it's based you know it's banned yeah. But it's effectively Kieran's hands, who, when he was 18, it took me a long time even to mention him. And I had to ask his permission because I thought, you know, it's we appropriate so many people's stories and we have to be careful of doing that. But anyway, yeah. he had a massive asthma attack when he was 18 and uh, he'd never really had one before. And I was in Lewisham A&E because, you know, I'm a South London girl. And that was the first night that I really thought about the nature of breathing. It had never really occurred to me. I'm not a yogi. I don't meditate as such. Yeah. I don't do any of those things. And, you know, I wasn't working with the material, but I suddenly thought, wow, this is important. And then, you know, serendipity, these things, it's funny, isn't it? I think when you have your tentacles out to things, you just pick up on the zeitgeist of things. And then I met the guys who create the ceramic about a year later, and Houston, which is the second most polluted road in the country, commissioned a piece. I thought, what am I going to make? And I thought, I want to make a piece that's about breathing, about that freedom of being able to lift your head and not think twice about what you're breathing. Yeah. And unfortunately, we now know that, what is it, nine in ten people in the world breathe air that at different times is of, of insufficient quality, you know? It affects everything from child development to dementia to... And you don't think about it because you can't see it, but it's a fundamental right. And, you know, I often talk about the rule of three. So you can live for three minutes, was it three weeks without food, three days without water, but only three minutes without air. But the other thing that I've become abundantly aware of in this last year when we did the Horniman piece, so it's changing my work a lot. So it's not just about us, right? We always think we're all so egocentric, aren't we? We're at the center of everything. Bugs, insects, animals, plants, you know, the plant life from which we've evolved without clean air, they are all affected as well. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm on a, yeah, I'm on a bit of a mission. And we're just a link in, in a massive chain. And if we ruin a link further down the line, man, it's only going to affect us in the long run. But the yes. sculpture you was just talking about, it was bold cupped hands. Yes, my, and, my, so it's my son's hands. You know, like in that Oliver, I think it reminds yeah, me of Oliver. Yeah, that's what I, I saw when I saw yeah. it. When, when Oliver lifts his hands up and he goes, more please, that's exactly what I was thinking of because one in 10 people now need an asthma inhaler. And we in have, the hands was an asthma inhaler. Yeah, and you, uh, you know, schools have asthma stations. I didn't have any of that growing no. up. I don't know about you, Gary, but it 
was not something I didn't know anyone with asthma and now so many people have it so I just thought this is something we need to become aware of so that we can get we can get things changed and you can see it's happening in London you know where we're kind of extending out the emission zone obviously hopefully we'll be getting more, rid of more diesel and, and petrol cars eventually but it's it's fundamental to our well-being it really really is and how much of a sufferer is your son He's not actually he's not that bad. That's I think why I was so thrown because he'd been into railing, you know, after sixth form. So they were winning yeah. and uh, it was obviously a bit run down. So most of the time he doesn't really uh, it doesn't affect him at all. And that that was the other penny that dropped. I thought it is only when something becomes intensely personal that you start to feel the need to do something about it. Yeah. And that's when it happened for me, really. And you know the other the other really moving thing that I saw. Do you remember when there were the big fires in Australia a couple of years yeah. ago? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. So there was a bit on the news where one of the firefighters was obviously fighting this enormous blaze, and they caught him stopping to take a puff of his inhaler. Wow. And that that those that imagery is really stuck with me. But then, as I say, the other thing I started to learn was that if you're a bee or a butterfly or a pollinating flower, and again you think of one in every three mouthfuls of food that we eat are because of these teeny tiny creatures that we just think are quite pretty and nice. Yeah, yeah. But they can't find their flowers if there's too much pollution in the air. So they can't find their flowers. They can't do the pollinating. We can't get the, the, the fruit and the food that we need. And it's this wonderful, delicate balance that I think most, and you know, I didn't appreciate it to be fair. And I'm still no. learning about it. But that's my job. I'm thinking, can I make work that will communicate this in, in some way? Yeah. Well, saying that about we're, we're sort of pretty much ignorant to that, this is since lockdown, one of the things that me and my wife done was plant flowers in the garden. We've never done that before. It was just because we had so much time. What can we do to fill some time? Garden centres are open. Let's go and spend 50 quid on some plants. And we got some that we thought well, we know nothing. We just got ones that were pretty. And it just so happens that they really attract the bees. And both of us, we've both caught each other standing at our front room window, watching the bees going from plant to plant. It's, it's, isn't it when people, often people say to me, so I do a lot of public speaking about creative and divergent thinking. Because um, I remember reading, there was a wonderful article yesterday about Gareth Southgate. And one of the reasons the team has been so successful is because he's had a lot of divergent thinkers come in. And I thought, Brilliant. there you go. So even in football. <laughs> but, um, but that act of creation, when people say to me, I'm not creative, I say, listen, from the moment you get up in the morning and you decide how to make a cup of coffee, yeah, how to make yeah, bread, yeah. you are creating all the time. And one of the, as you just said, one of the most beautiful acts of creation is when you grow something. Yeah. And I didn't get that because my father, my, my grandparents in Italy lived on the land. And if they didn't, if they didn't produce food, they didn't eat, you know? And then my dad grows food. And again, I took it for granted. And then I really started to appreciate that actually when I had a tomato at the table that he'd grown, this was his act of creation. And it was far more significant than anything that I could create. And you know, if you think about the future, food is going to be a massive issue. So yeah. it's lovely to hear that, yeah, you actually thought, do you know what, I'm feeding the bumblebees. And that's a nice feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's so basic because we haven't done anything. They would have got, the bees would have got it from the garden centre a few hundred yards away from where we live anyway. But the fact that they've sort of, it, it felt like they've come and we've given well, them well, The fact that you planted them means yeah. that you're able 
grow and they will get more bushy. And if you see a hungry bee, you put out a bit of sugar water for it. Because you know sometimes you see them struggling at various times of the year. Yeah, yeah. You can you can support them, you can help them. And even like butterflies, you know, when they have to hibernate and caterpillars and everything, they need somewhere to go. So when people keep their lawns really short, that's not helping. Whereas if you if you allow them just to be a little bit longer, these tiny creatures have somewhere to go and hibernate and hide. Brilliant. And it's little small. So, you know, the fact that I hope that we out, we outlaw tarmacking drives eventually because we need the green spaces, especially in cities, you know? Yeah, we have, we have opted not to do that with ours, actually. We've got grass. Good, good man. That was a conscious thing that we said. You but know, Gary, you know the funny thing about that is that when you, when you start to look at that, because again, I do a lot of stuff on Future City, you have urban heating, you know, and the more tarmac you put in, the hotter the city becomes. Of course, you know? yeah. So these things are so beautifully interrelated and you think actually one teeny tiny change here can result in, in a massive change somewhere else. Yeah, see, I've, I've never never thought of things like that. I was aware that the tarmacking and paving of drives has caused um, the uh, less water coming back into the earth because it's all running away elsewhere and and that wasn't part of it to the truth we we just put grass down we saw that everyone else in our street has got tarmac or or possibly block paving and it just looks it just reminds me of when i was a kid everyone had a garden you know what i mean no but you're a divergent thinker you're one of those people that you're a bit like me you're a bit contrary you're going with everybody else is going to do that i'm going to do this yeah and we need that we need that in the world we don't need the reason we're in the the crap that we are is because too many people have thought the same way and they don't want to rock the boat we need boat rockers so well done um it feels like the world's turning a little bit doesn't it i mean when there's people like myself who are ignorant to a lot of stuff start to take notice even just in a little way just them little changes can make a big difference if if a, if a lot of people do them you know but that's how it happens. Again, you know, you talk about when you want to change the world, you think, you know, about the acid bomb, you know, these massive, huge changes that happen. They came from teeny tiny little acts. That's why I always say to people, we can't, we can't, one individual can't change the world. But the fact that one day you might decide to wear odd socks, and I know it sounds ridiculous. And people go, how does that change the world? Because the day you do something uncomfortable, however small, is the day you change the, the path that your, your ideas are taking, is the, the day that your brain starts to change. And you do that more Brilliant. and more and more, and everyone else does it. All of a sudden we go, hang on a minute, we, we're going to have to, we're going to have to approach this differently. Yeah. And it really is as simple as that. Well, that, that charging 5p for a shopping bag, I thought was a great thing. The five pence isn't the reason that I no longer buy one. I'd rather carry it now because every time they say, do you want a bag for 5p? I think, well, no, <laughs> I don't. Whereas when it was free, I just used to go, I'll have another one, I'll have another one. And I wouldn't even fill them up properly, you know, because they were there, they were for nothing. When they're asking me if I want one for 5p, it's not the 5p I'm thinking of. It's the fact, do I want a bag and do I want the responsibility of it? And But Gary, it's become personal. When it suddenly becomes personal, you suddenly start to appreciate it. Because I'm, I'm not a huge environmentalist. And, and a lot of it, to be honest, sort of, I'm, I'm blind to it. But like you just said, when I do become aware of it, then I do enter it into my world. And then it sort of filters out into into other thought processes and acts that I do. But Gary, yeah. I'm not, I, as I keep saying, I am an accidental activist. I'm not perfect. 
pesto leaf burgers. God, I, and I know I probably shouldn't and stuff like that. But, you know, sometimes people are in danger of saying, well, if you don't do everything perfectly, then you don't take it seriously. That's not the case that, you know, it's, it's quite nuanced. You have people who aren't aware at all, people who live their entire, but there is a whole most of the world is going to be on the in-between bit. Yeah, it's yeah. not good enough to say, well, I don't do it all, so I won't do any of it. Just even if they're teeny tiny things and you become aware that that's enough, you know, that's enough to drive change. Did you have art at home growing up, Jasmine? No, but, you know, again, in retrospect, you know, my father um, is Italian, my mother is French. So I obviously grew up with, you know, a lot of cultural input. And we live about, uh, well, my father lives about an hour outside of Venice. And again, it was only about three years ago that the penny dropped because I would always have to go and visit at least once when I went to visit him. It was, it was again, the penny dropped. I thought I'd been surrounded by ancient statues, death masks, glass, water. But I hadn't, again, going back to that thing, I wasn't aware of it. You know, something can surround you all the time. Yeah, yeah. Just it. It's just there all the time. And then one morning you go, oh, that's why I do what I do, because I've been looking at those things for most of my life, but mm. I hadn't made that connection. So I have been very fortunate in that way. But now I kind of had the type of parents that said, no, you've got to go and do a proper job. You're not doing art. <laughs> and that's what parents do. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? They're not wrong and, and they're not, not right. It backfires. <laughs> backfires because you still end up doing what you were probably supposed to do <laughs> yeah and then you know most parents who sort of rebelled against that will say that to their children possibly yeah and you know you never know yeah. um and did you travel to venice much no i used to go and visit my grandparents every summer when I got older I would go and see my dad every summer and I, as I say I would always try and get on the train to go into Venice once just to because for me in fact it's funny enough I was reading it this morning I was reading about it this morning uh trees trees have, have been fundamental to like Venice's creation if you Venice is balanced on literally tens of millions of tree trunks right That's yeah what's it's possible. mad isn't it and they're petrified so they won't rot or anything like that and I remember when somebody was telling me that and I was thinking, I wonder if the person or the, the people that they took the trees from were a bit annoyed. And again, it was the first time that I started to think about deforestation and what it means, you know, to go and just nick a whole load of somebody else's trees. But one of the things I love about Venice is it's unchanged. It hasn't. So, you know, you stand in some places and I had a solo show there years ago, which was so moving for me because it was like being, you know, with family out there. Nice. But um, you go there and you think Byron stood here, Turner stood here. Wait, that's exactly what I was saying when I went. It hasn't changed, and it you can feel the energy, and it's it's very it's very humbling. It's an amazing place. I went for the first time on the last Biennale. Um, my friend Lee took me for my fiftieth, and um, so it was what, what was it two years, two summers ago? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can't even. I, I I haven't got the vocabulary to explain it, but it's like being in a dream yeah it's just beautiful like Disneyland one of my friends called it like Disneyland for adults <laughs> oh it's, it was stunning it was just absolutely stunning the thing that really got me though on our first night there but we was on one of the main drags and we were sitting there having some dinner and then all of a sudden I've looked down to my left towards the the um, lagoon and fucking hell this city just floated along in oh no don't get me started on that on and the I was why well, do that? What well, it doesn't need it here. I was in somewhere that, that felt so pure and ancient. And and what the hell is this 
18 story or whatever it might be thing just floating along literally blocking out the view they was having a holiday it's, it, it, you know that's that's their decision but my god it didn't need to be there and when i was mentioning it even the the, the waiter who was coming along he, he he gave me a little clap and it i wasn't aware that they're trying to stop all of that wow, because, because of the because damage it's doing the to the lagoon really no, Gary, they leave the engines running because these great big mammoth things, you know, you can't switch everything off because it would take an eon. So you imagine these things are sitting there with the engines running, polluting the water, polluting the air. And I get that people want to visit, but you know what? Park them way outside. <laughs> yeah. Park them way outside. And, and you know, these all these heritage sites, it's like, you know, not just, not just Venice, but so many sites of natural wonder. You have to, you have to realize that you can't, if you go there, you change it by the very nature of you. <laughs> and, you know, I often think that Venice should charge a tax on people going to visit because very few Venetians live in Venice anymore. Yeah. It's just full of empty apartments and, and tourists. And, and, you know, one of the one of the things about Venice is when you think of the, the Carnevale, you know, when you saw all the, the masks and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of the few times in the year because they used to do it to celebrate um, Lent, you know, so before everybody gave everything up, <laughs> they were going to have a damn good party. <laughs> of course. So the way that they would basically be able to behave any way that they wanted is that they would all wear masks. But one of the interesting thing about the mask balls is that the paupers and the aristocrats mixed in the same places. Yeah. It was one of the few times that class was completely obliterated. Brilliant. And I really like that idea that you know, just for a few, you know, once once in the year that you could mix, you could mix with anyone and you could pretend to be anybody that you wanted. And yeah, there was something that's quite as that's part of hiding your identity and having a persona, isn't it? You know, they're all they're all innocent and they're all they're all new, aren't they? You know? Yeah. yeah. And the word quarantine comes from Venice as well. Oh, does it? Yeah, quarantani, quaranta giorni is, is 40 days. So when the when the Black Death appeared, they they would quarantine. They would stop people, kind of leaving for forty days. So yeah, that's where the word quarantine comes from as well. And you know the big the big noses, the big yeah. noses. Uh, they would put pepper and spice in the end of those things <laughs> to keep black the Black Death at bay. Brilliant. Like, yeah. So the the history of all of that bit is fascinating. But yeah, it was a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful place. I absolutely loved it. What piece that you've created, Jasmine, has got the strongest emotional connection, do you think? The Flower Girl, Flower Girl at the Horniman, made me cry. When I we, right, we put it in, we put it in last May. The Flower Girl is just, it's just a face. It's again, it's one of my, I guess, death masks. Is it a sleeping mask? I don't know, but it's a, it's a face of, uh, of a young woman who is actually a dear friend who is, she's an engineer who directs future cities in london but she's also a dancer and i picked her quite by accident but she works beautifully so ellie is the face and she's surrounded by these giant petals which are half open half closed and she's made out of this material that's absorbing the pollution but when we put her in the ground at the museum they hadn't actually finished building all the bee gardens and they hadn't and the flowering hadn't taken place so she just this this you know sculpture in a bare yeah, space yeah. you know but then about six weeks later, I went to see her and I just, honestly, I nearly burst into tears on the spot. And I'm not that type of person because the flowers had grown, the lavender was up, the, the, the wild carrot, the, they put the bee hotels in. And for the first time, Gary, I understood that public art has to fit into the place that it's in. It exactly. can't be this separate thing. And she was so at home. 
And it was also at that point that um, I really started to understand planting and grafts and I've become really interested now in horticulture as well. Wow. And the meaning of it, because like topsoil, for example, is probably more precious than gold. Topsoil, one, one square inch of topsoil takes about 500 years to mature. Wow. Right? And, and it's millions of years old because it's got ground up rock in it. And without topsoil, we would just have deserts. We would just, and I thought, when doesn't everyone realize how precious this stuff is? So Flower Girl has really opened my eyes. And then there's another piece I've just made with, um, of course, now that I've started picking up grass and God knows what. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when Wes and I go for a walk, we went for a walk in the New Forest recently and there was this tree that had been hit by lightning. Yeah. And there were great big, beautiful branches on the ground. It was really blackened. And I thought, I want to use that for something. I didn't know what. And I've just created a sculpture that is uh, it's about the, the, the bird that lost its song. And, uh, and again, it was this story of the honey badger bird in Australia that has so few of its compatriots left, it doesn't know how to sing anymore. Oh, man. And that, that story, I, I would actually like to create a whole exhibition around that. That idea is not just about the bird and, and the animals that are becoming extinct, but the fact that humans, we are losing our story. We need to sing our story to each other because ultimately that's what art and culture is about. It's about, you know, not letting those narratives die. And, and when you look at indigenous people who have managed the land and cared for it so beautifully for so long, and yet we don't listen to them, we don't speak to them. And obviously breathe in Houston, which took four years for it to go up. So, uh, and she does look like she's floating. Cause when you make something on the ground, you have no idea what it's going to look like. No. And again, I had a little tear when that went up because I went, that looks exactly like I wanted her to look. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a magical mystery tour when you're making art and go, will this work? Will this not work? And then when you kind of see it, I'm getting, yeah, that works. Well, I see, and I've mentioned this on here a few times, but I see a, creating an artwork because it, it starts off as a puzzle we, we we're not entirely sure it's going to work while we're making it or that we're going to resolve the problem or solve the puzzle and even when it's when it's up we're still asking questions about that artwork have i succeeded have i answered this have i answered that and like you say sometimes it's not until you revisit it after you've taking it out of your mind or your thought process for a while you go back you look at it in fresh eyes and then it it tells you rather than you know you find out and yeah that can be a, a beautiful thing that oh i think that's the best for me that's the only way to work now i don't really because sometimes i get i have problems because of that because they go yeah well what are you going to make and I, go, I don't know <laughs> i've got it's like i've got this i've got branches i've got that and it's literally like building with lego and you just go in and you start playing and you go oh that works that doesn't but I think to kind of go in with this conceived idea of what you're going to produce, it doesn't work. For me, it doesn't work. Well, I found on here, speaking to so many artists, that a lot of us have the same sort of experience insofar as there's an inner urge to make something. Our mind doesn't quite know what we want to make, but our subconscious is sort of leading us in a direction. Gary, you are so spot on. And that is one of the things I find so exciting about what we do and it's why it's so highly addictive because you think, I know there's a story here. I don't know what it is yet, but it will come out at yeah. some time and I will, and then it will make sense. Isn't that just so exciting and such a privilege to kind yeah. of, you realize that the dots are joining all on their own. And of course, the longer you live, the more stuff you have to join the dots with. And 
So, you know, for me, creativity, you get more creative with age without a shadow of a doubt, not less. How do you relax? <laughs> oh, relaxing. I'm not, I'm not good. I do like having a good snob, I've got to be honest. A good? Um, but a good slob on the sofa. Oh, if we said a snog, I was going to say. Oh, that's fair. Nothing wrong with a good snob. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, they, no, these are scientists alike. <laughs> I know we like good snobs. Well. I can't turn one of those down. Um, but no, now it really is about, and I really have discovered them in the last couple. It's it's going for a walk places I haven't been before, and I am overwhelmed when I when I go out now. I think my my eyes are so finely tuned to everything. I'm going to take everything home that's on the ground. Honestly, in this house, we've got more. Kieran goes, oh, my goodness, have you just brought another bit of tree home? Where are you going to put it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's getting beyond a joke. So, um, but, yeah, it's going for a walk. But also, it's, you know, it really is. I think we've appreciated it even more with the pandemic. It's, it's being able to sit with friends and talk nonsense. It's being able to, you know, when you have people that just get you and you have a belly laugh. Yeah, yeah. You have a long call. It really is the simple things. It, it's not. It's not a lot that yeah they are some of my greatest skills. yeah that's what we've all discovered is when you take all the busy out of your life um and that's what pandemic done for a, a lot of people yeah. yeah unfortunately so many people had more busy thrown on their lap you know but um when you have time to sort of look around at what you've got and yeah. what you don't have or the, what you wish you had and some of us are lucky enough to be able to to take steps to to make it a bit better, you know? And yeah, when you look around you and like you just say, laughter, love, and you know, even your neighbors, speaking to your neighbors and stuff like that. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I was, I got invited onto this show a while ago and they were saying, they, they asked about top five um, happenings during the pandemic. One was a neighbor of ours, it was his birthday and he was 94 and loads of the neighbors come out socially distanced I've lived here for years and I didn't know most of these people, you know, but because of this old boy who lives at the bottom of my garden, he sits on a mode stall. Um, yeah. So his house is at the bottom of my garden, but we was all stood out there. Someone knocked on his door and everyone just clapped when he come out. And oh, it's funny because possibly because of the time and it was near, um, I don't know whether it was VE day or one of those specific yeah days you know but everyone was clapping and, and we was all getting emotional and, yeah. and none of us asked each other why but you could see people it was just that being together in a in a moment when we was all supposed to be apart and indoors we all come out to be together do I something that's right you know you, Gary, when you just said to me what's the most meaningful i've also created another thing which we want to scale up and it's called the planetary puffer just listening to you and it's basically a giant asthma puffer made out of the material. But on the front of the puffer, instead of all the, you know, all the sort of pharmaceuticals and this, that and the other, I've actually got the words all basically was all the byproducts, all the symptoms of COVID in, in terms of the good symptoms, you know, the good yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got on it bluer skies, you know, um, more awareness of inequality, more wildlife, because that to me, you know, was one of the the great things about the pandemic and it ripped through my family i nearly lost both my parents because of it so it's not wow. that i haven't seen the reality of it 
But the way that you balance that is you think, yes, but look at the good, look at the good things that have come from it. And, you know, if you even think of the word pandemic, you know, pan is from the God, you know, that he was one of the gods of nature and stuff. And one of the reasons well, things like that, yeah, so one of the reasons things like that happen is because, you know, the creatures that are supposed to be living in their homes are being forced into ours, right? Yeah. And that you know when people kind of go there's not a profit in doing but it's not about if you don't kind of allow if you don't kind of try and balance the environment and allow areas for you know the animals that have always lived there to be there it will it will come and affect us and that's one of the things that we've seen and people need to understand that you know so it's it's a big learning curve and all i'm hoping is that we don't revert i hope that we don't go back to it all being about us and you know, us being you'd, you'd like to think not, wouldn't you? I hope so. I hope that we've learned some sort of lesson from it. When you said that that artwork behind you um, has relationships with vapor trail from a from an aeroplane, yeah. um, several years ago when there was the volcano in Iceland, and we was walking from the shops to our flat that we was living in at the time, and my daughter said to me, "Why don't you keep looking up the sky and smiling?" I said, look, you look up at that blue sky. I said, there's none of them white lines in it. Beautiful to see that them lines aren't there. I said, and you should take notice of this because you probably won't ever see it in your lifetime again. And then during the pandemic, I was out again with my daughter and she's given me a little nudge on the arm and pointed up. She went, you know, it's happened again. And that really sort of connected with me, you know, that it sort of stayed with her and she remembered it and sort of proved me wrong a few years oh, later, you, you know. You really have an artist's soul and it's lovely that you're passing it on to your girl. It is lovely because what a joy, you know, can you, because that's the thing I just want for everyone. You think if everyone can get that type of buzz just from going out and looking up at the sky, you wouldn't need to go and consume. You wouldn't need to go and buy things you don't need. You wouldn't need to get that buzz by having an argument with somebody unnecessarily. And I know I am quite idealistic, but I'm an artist. I'm meant to be. <laughs> yeah. some, of us, some of us are supposed to be like that. And um yeah, and, and it's it's lovely. That's a that yeah, it's a lovely story because as you say, when the trails disappeared, not only did the trails disappear, but I don't know about you, the birds were so loud. Wasn't it? So loud. And so many people had noticed though as well. I'd seen on social media saying the birds are singing louder. It's it's amazing, isn't it? It is beautiful. And it's they're probably just singing as much as they did. It's just that we was too fucking busy to listen to them, you know. And also us just staying out of their space, you know, again, I'm going to bang on about the environmental thing, but when you look at hedgerows and things, again, you just, you go for a walk in the country, you don't think about it, but they're trying to put more hedgerows back instead of, you know, barriers and walls, because it supports everything from, you know, the little hedgehogs to the birds to the, and it's these, it really isn't high tech. That's the thing that gets me. It's not high tech. It's not expensive. It's just putting back some of the things that were always there. (laughs) i'll stop now (laughs) (laughs) well there was there was an advert come on a while ago and again it was my daughter we were sitting there watching and it was an advert for garden fencing and they said why have this and they showed like this um like evergreen at the end of the garden you know when you can have this and then they sort of done this animated fence being built you know but then my daughter said oh i'd rather have the bush and I was like, yeah, brilliant. Oh, absolutely. 
put something living there, something that can be home for somebody. It's not, as you realise, it's not great big changes. It's only little ones. Yeah. Well, if there was you and five other artists, Jasmine, past and present, what would your ideal group show be? I'd have Da Vinci, obviously. Nice. for me. I'd have Oliver Ellison, who just has, I think the show may have closed, I can't remember. But, uh, you know, he did the big weather project at the tape, the big, the big mm -hmm. sun. But he, and from that, he, they created something called Little Sun, which is a solar powered thing, which has changed the life of something like two million people throughout the world. So that was as a direct result of an exhibition. Sorry to interrupt. When you said Does the Sun, was that the one that was several years ago? That was, yeah, I think 2003 was at the tape, the weather project. I've got to say, that was one of the most mesmerizing art experiences because I wasn't expecting that. I came into the tape from the side entrance towards where the bridge is, yeah. walked in, I saw the glow and it was just glorious. It took my breath away. I really, I think that was probably one of the most successful things, but the beauty of that, because I often look at him and I think he's a scientist as well as an artist. They created this little handheld thing called Little Sun, which is uh, a thing that can charge up all day and then it gives you electricity at night. And if you think in places in the world where there is no electricity at night, that affects your ability to sit and eat with your family or educate. So, and I love that that has come from an art project. Brilliant. So, um, was it Harvey and Aykroyd who actually floated the great big grass piece just last week? Yeah, yeah, I saw that happen. Didn't know what was going on, but watched yeah. it and loved it. They have been working, I think, for about 30 years on Brilliant. photosynthesis and grass. So that was basically a grass drawing to, to drive awareness about. And they also created something called Culture Declares an Emergency, which is what a lot of museums and individuals are signing up to. And, and you can as an artist, anyone can. And all it is is something that says, you know, I will become aware of the materials I'm using, the carbon footprint I'm leaving, um, who else would I have? I would love to have Alexander McQueen. <laughs> oh man, he was just, to me, it wasn't about fashion. He was a sculptor. In yeah. Um, love, uh, what's her name? Agnes Dean did a massive grass field just outside the World Trade Center, I think in 1980 something. Or that. Again, she brought the country into the city. Um, I'm just trying to think again off the top of my head. That, that, that would probably be enough now. But yeah, there'd be quite a few, but they are quite disparate. They're quite different. I'd have to have a couple of scientists there as well, probably. <laughs> this is what I love about doing this podcast is that you realise that there isn't any boundaries or borders within the art world. It just bleeds and merges into, into other areas. And, you know, science has always been there. You know, you said Da Vinci, you know, I mean, if that man wasn't half scientist and half artist. You know, he hardly ever finished anything because he was always on to that. If you want an eternally curious mind, he was an example of an eternally curious Brilliant. mind. Always moving on to the next thing. I love that. What, what would you do if you wasn't an artist? Um, well, I don't think it's about me. I'm just, um, what we produce as artists is important. But for me, and I've done a lot of public speaking on this, it's how we think that is incredibly important. And I, um, you know, I speak to a lot of companies and trying to get more and more companies to understand that they need the divergent, they need people who don't think the way that they do. So I'm probably doing most of the things that I would want to do, apart from producing art, but it's, um, 
Yeah, you know, I was mentioning that thing about being prophets of the future. It's, I guess, helping other people think in that way, which I really enjoy. I, I get such a buzz when I see the light come on for someone or I can see that their journey is starting. I mean, there's not many jobs that I don't think that I've done. Um, I would like to write a book at some point. I know that's that's brimming, you know, how create, you know, creative thinking or divergent thinking can change the world. But I, I honestly don't, I, I can't imagine that I would be doing anything other than I am. I just, no, I can't, I can't, no. There, you know, when people say, what would you like to be when you grow up? I've found it. <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when you're talking about the, your science life. Yes. I forgot you was talking about science for a moment because it was exactly the same words that that artists use to talk about their art. You well, it's taken me, I guess it's taken me a long time to find a way of speaking about things like that. Because obviously sometimes I look at my thesis and I go, oh my God, who wrote that? But the thinking that went into that is not dissimilar from you know, from the way, because I guess with both of them, you know, whether it's science and you come up with an idea and then you try and find the measurements and the data to, to prove or disprove that, you're ultimately trying to enlarge knowledge, aren't you? You're trying to add something that wasn't, that wasn't there before. Yeah. Isn't that what artists are trying? Are they either trying to figure something out for themselves or they're trying to figure out a much bigger story that they want to communicate? But it's that eternal, what would happen if, why? It's that eternal why, what would happen if? And I think that's one of the things that A, makes you ageless. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Um, I, remember, I remember listening to the Dalai Lama once, and, and one of the reasons I love listening to him is he's like, he's obviously an incredibly smart and wise man. But if you didn't know that, you would think he's so incredibly childlike. And people dismiss that. So not childish, childlike. Yeah. I think that awe and wonder, I talk about that a lot, whether you're in art or science or anything else, it's maintaining that, oh my goodness, isn't it amazing that this tree is a repeating fractal and the roots are, you know, one bit of roots exactly the same as another, you know, how things link, I find fascinating. So biomimicry, again, is one of the things that I find really amazing. You know, we kind of look at a, a humble butterfly and we'll dismiss it, Gary, it's just, you know, something that's pretty decorative and but when you really dig down into a butterfly, you know, like the, the blue one was at the Morpheus, it looks incredibly blue, but actually it's transparent. And there's an amazing amount of physics happening in, in the wings, you know, the way that we get the color. And if you think of uh, the waterproofing of mobile phones, the idea came from butterflies and- I didn't know that. Yeah, so that biomimicry nearly, really, really interests me now because engineers and scientists are kind of thinking, if there is a problem that we need to solve, nature's been doing it for 4 billion years. Well, I was going to say, if you think about magic mushrooms at the moment, right? It's a huge amount of being, money being spent in Silicon Valley. A lot of investors are looking at, you know, the, the chemicals that come because they, yeah, obviously, <laughs> we know what magic mushrooms can do. But they have all sorts of um, things from helping you possibly with dementia to obviously helping you think more clearly. And so, yeah, it's kind of, but if we kill everything before we can actually have <laughs> useful and that's the thing you want to say don't you need to take care of these things because everything somehow or other is actually related to us already we wouldn't be here otherwise there's always going to be someone jasmine saying you know that magic mushroom field we could fit 30 apartments on there <laughs> <laughs> let's do that instead you know that's always going to be the way unfortunately jasmine what have you got going on at the moment and what have you got coming up 
So um, I'm working towards, there's a couple of exhibitions coming up. So I'm working on trying to finish this, this body of work, you know, this, this about the bird who lost its song. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm working sure. on those. Uh, I've been asked to do a few things that I can't talk about, but there's quite a lot of um, speaking about stuff to do with the environment. And again, trying to get more artists involved with the scientists. Um, big project for next year uh, yeah I'm sorry I'm being a little bit I'm being a little bit wishy-washy oh yeah no obviously I'm working with Gillian Jason Gallery at the moment and we will be Brilliant. Doing oh that's right World Wildlife Fund <laughs> we're doing something for their auction so yeah there's there's quite a lot of bits and pieces coming up but I'm just I can tell that there's a bit of a shift in my work at the moment and uh how are you feeling with that shift because a lot of time the artist has no control over that shift. Oh, it's making the work better without a shadow of a doubt. It's just, uh, and trying to scale. The other thing I'm really, obviously COP is coming up and uh, I actually want to try and have a go at some of the guys that I'm working with. I really want to look at things like light projection in terms of Brilliant. trying to present data using, I actually want to use some more of the technology. You know, as I said at the beginning, it's about the traditional, but bringing it into the future. And there are so many interesting possibilities now. And I am very blessed that I collaborate with a lot of people who are doing some very cool things, but it's trying Excellent. to find the common threads, you know? Basically storytelling, how can we tell a better story? Yeah, but it's so exciting. It, you know, it's so exciting for me as a as an artist and an art lover, you know, to hear about bringing in science because it's something that working with technology or even with museums, you know, bringing in the past into their current day. And also one of the biggest plans really is now that I understand the power of, of the environment with art. You know, if you look at places like House and Worth, you know, they've got their big Somerset gallery, which, and the outside has been planted by Pierre Udolf. If you look him up, he's an amazing horticulturalist and believes in the power of uh, wild planting, but it's not that wild. Yeah. But um, it's about trying to scale up the, the work, but putting it in a setting in which the planting and what's happening in the in the natural world is as important as the sculpture. So, so I think that's the main thing in my mind at the moment. How do we bring all those threads together? Brilliant. Well, Jasmine, that's all my questions asked. You know what? First of all, I'm always honoured when people actually take the time to to bother to ask you about what you do and why you do. And it's lovely to hear somebody else's story as well. So thank you for that. This has been really, really, really good fun. I feel as if I'm getting to know a new friend. Oh, thank you very much. Jasmine, you, I'll see Bye. you later. Have a good afternoon. Bye. Bye. There you go, Dr. Jasmine Pradesito. How cool was that episode? And I'm sure that many of you would have been just like me during that conversation. By realising just how much of a big difference a little change can make. And if you happen to be in the Euston area of London and want to see some of Jasmine's work, you can see Breathe, which she mentioned in this podcast, which is on display above the Camden People's Theatre. Well, that's about it for this week. Next week, we've got quite an iconic name in the world of performance art. And that's another one definitely not to be missed. But until then, toodle pip. Well, hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. If you're unable to support us on Patreon... Leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast. Or even giving us a positive shout out on your social media. Anything is appreciated. But either way, thanks for listening. And until next week, ta-da.
Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.